0: My name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. And today I'll be speaking with Dr. David Ambaras about his book, Japan's Imperial Underworlds, Intimate Encounters at the Border of Empire. Uh, This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Dr. Ambaras uses a series of provocative case studies on mobility, transgression, and intimacy to interrogate the spatial and ideological formations of modern Japan. In its first seven decades or so uh, as a brand new nation state and as an empire, Um, and he does this especially vis-a-vis China. Uh, The slippage between the individual body and the collective or national body uh, is a critical theme as the book highlights the roles of media and government narratives in defining a shared national vision of Japan um, and also uh, deals with the powerful alchemy of pride and anxiety around the transgression of these newly forming or formed borders. Uh, case studies include human trafficking, international marriage, middlebrow literature, and even a pirate queen. Uh, and the study overall uh, is one of marginalized people on the margins. And from that uh, vantage point, it throws new light on Japan and maritime East Asia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. All right. So, Dr. Ambrose, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the podcast. Um, so in your introduction to the, to the book, which I want to talk about first... Um, You set out your agenda to examine episodes of what you call transgressive intimacy, uh, which involve, uh, as you put it, mobile subjects in marginal locations. Um, And this is for you to sort of uh, better understand their effects on the regulation of territory and policing of underworlds on the one hand um, and the ways in which these marginal and marginalized people Uh, And again, I'm quoting from you here, uh, stimulated fantasies that opened new spaces for the elaboration of imperial power in its material and discursive forms. So first, could you tell us about the sort of spatiotemporal scope of the book, um, and then explain the kinds of case studies you examine, and the tension between different articulations of power that you implicate them and their transgressive mobilities in? And specifically, if you could, I'd love if you could elaborate on your interest in process geographies and the uh, what you call the imaginative geographies that informed and were produced by these mobile intimacies, and how those things shaped your choice of subjects and sources.
1: Sure. Um, it's a, a really thick web of questions there. Thank you for that. Uh, maybe I should step back and um, talk a bit about how I came to this project to begin with. Um, I'm, In some ways, I define myself or I've been defined by others as a historian of transgression. So my first uh, book was on juvenile delinquency. Um, and when I was finishing that up, I realized that I had written a book that dealt with um, Different kinds of modern colonizing power, but that I hadn't really looked at Japan as a colonial empire per se. And so I thought that my next project should have to do with Japanese imperialism um, in its colonial forms. And I started working on uh, Taiwan, doing a lot of research on Taiwan. Uh, And little by little, I got interested in the South China Sea area and the movement of peoples around the South China Sea area uh, between Japan and the the South China Sea. So that's kind of the geographical scope that emerged for this project. and what I thought when, uh, when I was working is that I would do something that was really Taiwan-centric, but then um, in reading the Taiwanese-Japanese language newspapers and digging around in various archives, including the foreign ministry archives, I found these um, incredible folders of materials about um, peddlers and so-called abducted women and child trafficking and things like that that um, hadn't really been talked about in the historiography with which I was familiar And uh, which to me opened up a whole new window on Japanese imperialism and on the formation of Japan as a a nation state uh, and empire. So um, the period that I'm looking at is really from the 1870s to the 1930s. Uh, And then I pick up in the epilogue, I pick up more recent uh, history as well. Um, and again, uh, as your readers will most likely be familiar with, this is a period when, after the Meiji Restoration, Japan is reforming itself as a modern nation state and then engaging with uh, new forms of imperialism that lead to a, an expansionist empire uh, taking shape and, um, and contesting uh, regional supremacy with uh, the Qing Empire and then asserting itself over the Chinese Republic Over the following decades. And the traditional narrative that we have of um, this era is of Japan rising and China falling. And by looking at um, what I've called transgressive intimacy and the mobility of these marginal people, uh, and we'll have a chance to talk more about them um, moving forward, uh, what I find is that that pat narrative of Japan rising and China falling just doesn't really explain um, a lot of the dynamics of um, spatial formation in modern East Asia. So, um, taking that as kind of a framing, what I do is I look at how, uh, these mobile, sometimes shadowy people, um, produce different kinds of relationships, um, that were seen as problematic, um, or sometimes frightening, uh, or horrific because they crossed different boundaries that, um, that were believed to be, um, The requisite boundaries of a modern nation-state, for example, not just the territorial boundaries, but also social boundaries uh, between people. And so, when you get into um, the movement of um, itinerant peddlers from South China into Japan, and the movement of children in their company or women in their company back to China, um, you begin to see uh, anxieties form and a discourse emerges among both government officials and the the popular media that calls for some kind of uh, rectification of the situation. And this brings up all kinds of questions about who belongs, where, what kind of territorial space Japan should be, what kind of nation, um, it is, how ethnic relations should play out and so forth. So these transgressive intimacies, um, are really the core of what I'm doing, looking at these kinds of questions.
0: Okay, great. And that, that's a, a really helpful, uh, answer to sort of get us started. And also, I want to thank you for saving me from myself, since I did promise you that I would ask you how you came to this project and then promptly forgot to do so. So I appreciate you putting that in there. Um, So in in your introduction, you also write that uh, by focusing on mobility at the margins, uh, I elucidate both the contingent nature of modern Japanese territoriality and the necessity of treating it in relation to other modes of spatiality, and I wonder if you could unpack that, especially the sort of question about territoriality, uh, borders, and this um, other modes of speciality, uh, me, spatiality spatiality—that uh, you bring up here in the context of your book.
1: Sure. Um, so, territory—you know—we we assume that um, states have territorial boundaries, and this is historically speaking, you know, a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, and so what happens is that uh, we need to treat um, the formation of territorial states and states' claims to control territory as one kind of social production of space. But um, if you follow geographers like Doreen Massey, for example, we can see that space uh, can be seen as, as constantly uh, in motion, as uh, constructed through uh, flows and networks and circulations uh, that are not necessarily bounded by or boundable by uh, the territorial uh, borders of the modern state. And so there's a tension between those two. Uh, And this is what I want to get at in the the book is that on the one hand, the the emergent Japanese state is trying to secure its own territory uh, as it has to, to be part of the uh, international community of of nations. But at the same time, um, it opens itself up as it, it, the so-called opening of Japan uh, in the 1850s meant that um, not only Euro-American influences com- could come in, but also Chinese networks could uh, come back into Japan in a fairly significant way. And so the networks of the what I call the Sinosphere, this, this space centered on the Chinese mainland, but which involves capital and migration, trade flows throughout East and Southeast Asia, um, this spatiality of the Sinosphere um also is shaping Japan at the same time that uh, territorial borders are being staked out. And so it's the tension between those two that I'm really looking at here. And in terms of um, treating this as a history of borders themselves, one of the things that I'm trying to argue is that Um, borders are not simply self-evident lines that are drawn and then accepted by everybody, but the borders are constantly being reformed. Uh, they're being contested. You have to perform borders through various rituals and actions. Uh, the media play a part in establishing borders or in destabilizing borders and people in motion are always contesting those borders. And again, if we think about just the the present moment in which we're living, this is self-evident, but for a long time, uh, in the scholarship, borders themselves were, were not really taken um, seriously other than as sort of geopolitical lines. So those are the kinds of spatial issues that I'm dealing with here.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, I was particularly interested in your sort of expansion of what I think is the sort of standard definition of the Sinosphere to include things like capital. I think that's really a, a useful, um, and at least for, to, uh, as far as uh, my knowledge goes a, re- a relatively innovative way of thinking about the sinosphere, so that's something um, that I felt was you know a really important contribution. Um, one last thing about the introduction before we jump into the chapters. Uh, you also uh, make a case for the value of these people, these events, these narratives. Um, that's not contingent on um, sort of quantifiable statistical significance, right? And you argue, uh, and I'm quoting here, it is the nature of people's activities and experiences, not their numerical scale that matters. Transgression meant something for those who undertook it consciously or not, and for those whose attention it captured. Um, you add to that that these stories gained their power because they arose from and spoke to matters of intimacy. Um, and I'd love you to dive into this a little bit more, too, because it seems to be a particularly strong intervention on behalf of qualitative research in what I think is a, an increasingly quantitative world.
1: Yeah, um... So that follows on something that I was doing in the first book Bad Youth as well which is that um you know when I was when I was preparing the research for that as a grad student and then revising it from a dissertation to a book Um, A lot of people would say, why are you working on juvenile delinquency in Japan? There is no juvenile delinquency. And one could cite statistics showing, you know, a relatively low rate of juvenile crime in Japan. Uh, And my, my response, kind of a pat response was, well, if that's the case, then why did so many people worry so much about it and produce so much text about it? Um, and you know the statistics about juvenile crime in japan could have been manipulated in, in various ways and one could have found statistics to suggest and, and contemporaries did that um that uh that japan's juvenile delinquency was as bad as or perhaps even worse than some people claimed than in euro-american countries um uh, so building on that older um work that I did, you know, I, I'm making the point here that it's not so much that we have to quantify something, but that how it's perceived can be very politically significant. Um, the, the threat perceived by, you know, 150 or 200 women leaving Japan in the company of Chinese peddlers, uh, is much greater discursively than, um, the number 150 or 200 would seem to indicate. Uh, and the same with, um, Questions of of children who are being moved across borders, uh, so or even the Chinese presence in Japan. It's never um, in the pre-war period as big as, say, the Korean population. I think the Chinese presence was at its most about forty thousand, and yet at times the presence of Chinese becomes uh, a marker for some serious challenges to Japan's sovereignty and power. So um, it's at that level that that um, transgressive behavior or transgressive presences. Uh, Becomes significant, and what's also important is that these are people who are border people they are they're not necessarily living on a geographical border, but they' are crossing different borders at different times and they're enacting borders at different times and so when one drills down to to their stories, one can begin to examine, first of all, how these stories were constructed by elites in the government or in uh, the media, and for what purposes they were constructed in those ways, and at the same time, how those stories might have been received by the general public. And we can also begin to ask questions about these mobile people, um, such as what did concepts like nation or empire really mean in their everyday lives we we tell macro level stories about japan and the japanese empire and we assume that everybody sees themselves or, or understands themselves somehow as a subject of that nation and empire but what did that mean when people were moving across the region and um and engaging in translocal relationships and in interethnic relationships that that uh, weren't predicated on the same set of of premises So for these reasons, I think that stories are a really good way to get at this. And um, it's not to uh, say that quantitative history is not good. It's a different kind of history. Uh, But from another perspective, um, even taking stories that seem to be extraordinary and not very um, large in number, um, one can get at issues that are more, one could say, quantitatively significant. So if we're thinking about A small group of marginal women who have to negotiate various life choices, well, that can tell us a lot about a much larger group of women uh, in pre-war Japan who had to negotiate similar life choices but wound up not leaving Japan for China, for example. Uh, Women who went into factory work, women who went into domestic service, women who negotiated troubled marriages and so forth, or unwanted pregnancies. All of these are are issues that, um, that can be brought out through a study of a relatively small sample. Um, so those are some of the ways that I would respond to that question.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, and you also provided a nice uh, segue into both chapter one and chapter two, because chapter one, uh, is about, uh, it's called treaty ports and traffickers, children's bodies, regional markets. And the making of national space. And obviously, this is where we're going to be talking about uh, the trafficking of children from Japan to China. And chapter two is where we get into these questions of uh, marriage between Japanese women and uh, fujin- mostly Fujinese uh, men. So I'd like to start off with chapter one. Um, and here, rather than a sort of um, uh, overarching narrative or meta narrative, um, and to my mind, befitting a project. Uh, interrogating the stability of these narratives, Uh, your chapters are, as you put it, uh, a set of connected micro-histories, the first of which is child trafficking from Japan to China. Um, You argue that transactions in children constituted an important domain in which the new modern Japanese state struggled to secure sovereignty. Um, And I think you've you've begun to talk about this, but if you could uh, say a little bit more about that, Uh, and what does this have to do with the territorialization and making of national space uh, to which you're connecting it in the book?
1: Yeah. um, So this chapter begins with an account of the discovery by Japanese officials in the treaty ports that Chinese uh, merchants, and by Chinese merchants, I'm not necessarily talking about compradors who were working at the the top level merchant houses or working for European and American merchants, but um, petty traders uh, of whom there were a lot in the treaty ports. In fact, the Chinese, this is a point that I uh, make is that the Chinese were the largest foreign population in Japan's treaty ports. And uh, and then a history of the treaty ports that focuses on Euro-Americans obscures that. Uh, But so, Chinese uh, merchants, petty merchants in the tree ports, were acquiring uh, children from Japanese families or from Japanese intermediaries. Um, And uh, nominally, they were adopting them or uh, providing them to people who wanted to adopt them. Uh, But it's not clear exactly what would have happened to um, children who were transferred out of Japan. Uh, And some were transferred out of Japan, whether they were in fact adopted by childless couples because Chinese uh, families were constantly being dissolved and reconstituted in response to economic dislocations. And so there was a market for children in China, Um, but there was a market for child labor in China. There was a market for bond-made girls in China. So um, uh, there's a discovery in any case that in the treaty ports, there's a traffic in, in children. And um, the Japanese state seeks to, uh, to. This is the new Meiji state that's just been formed. Seeks to um, prevent the um, the movement of children outside of uh, Japan or the movement of children into even the Chinese compounds in the treaty ports, and um, and then to get the um, both the Qing. Uh, Empire's representatives in the Qing government to recognize Japanese uh, sovereignty by uh, acknowledging Japanese laws and and um, not permitting Qing nationals to um, to acquire Japanese children. And so, um, what this brings up is questions about: so, what are the you know are the borders of Japan actually set at this time? Are they recognized uh, internationally, particularly by the Qing? who are um, still the largest power in East Asia at this time? Uh, And how can the Japanese get the Qing to recognize an emerging uh, set of Japanese laws about uh, movement across borders, um, territorial sovereignty, and so forth? And um, What we're seeing then is on on the one hand, going back to this question of the dynamic of territoriality versus other spatialities is that the state is trying to consolidate a Japanese space over which it has complete control. And this also involves um, getting Japanese subjects to recognize that um, they shouldn't be transacting in children with, with Chinese subjects. So the state is trying to do that, but at the same time, um, there is this historical market in, uh, in children and other human bodies in uh, a Chinese-centered East Asia. And there's a historical Japanese market in, um, in children and other human bodies. And so these two markets are basically being on the verge of being integrated at this point uh, from 18, the 1870s onward. And so um, territory is um, contesting control over space with these market networks. And that's the the larger story that I'm telling in this chapter, and um, I trace Japanese diplomatic and police efforts to control the movement of, of uh, Chinese peddlers uh, and children, um, to get the the Qing state and later the Chinese Republic to recognize. Um, Japanese uh, authority in these matters to uh, come up with uh, legal positions on international adoption that would prevent Chinese from acquiring Japanese children. Um, And yet struggling throughout the the pre-war era from the 1870s, even after Japan has defeated China in the Sino-Japanese War well into the 1930s, with the reality that there is still a a gray or black market in, um, in children's bodies and the children are winding up uh, in the custody of Chinese abroad, and so that's the the basic framework for the story here
0: right, and so you tell that uh larger story through a number of of case studies. Um, could you share one of those with us in in a little bit more detail and explain how it fits into this argument?
1: Um, so there you know I look at various um episodes throughout this period i mean in the um In the case of the 1870s and 1880s, I have um, newspaper accounts, police records, diplomatic records that that show how um, state officials are trying to um, prohibit the movement of children or recover children. Uh, And then after the Sino-Japanese War, in the early um, 1900s, I found uh, dossiers in which, for example, um, the governor of Hyogo Prefecture is reporting to um, the home ministry and the foreign ministry that um, they've they've broken a ring of traffickers uh, who are working in the slums, uh, the Japanese slums adjacent to Kobe's Chinatown, uh, that dozens and dozens of children are being um, brokered out uh, of the slums um, into China. And uh, then they're working to try and recover them. And so here, you know, the the standard argument we have about the turn of the 20th century is that after the Sino-Japanese War, Japan was absolutely dominant. And China had been put in its place. Uh, And yet, what we see is that still uh, on the fringes, we get a different kind of relationship among marginal actors that calls that into question and has to be rectified. So, this is one example um, of this kind of case. Uh, Another thing that I bring out is uh, in the world of rumor that um, from the 1880s, 1890s forward, you get these rumors circulating that um, Chinese. Merchants are acquiring Japanese children's bodies in order to harvest their organs, particularly their gallbladders, to make um, this kind of uh, cure-all medicine called rokshin or Six Gods Pill of and uh And so these rumors actually have a much older history in Japan. They go back to medieval uh, literature about um, trips to uh, the dangers of dark China. Uh, and they're also, I argue, connected to the fact that Chinese capital has been, um, dominant in, say, the match industry in Kobe and Osaka and places like that where child labor is being exploited quite ruthlessly. And so you get this, um, this fear of Chinese merchant capital tying in with older folklores about the dangers of China to produce these rumors that are circulating at the street level, but also get picked up by the police or translated in the media, uh, and ultimately become, invoked as justifications for Japan taking military action in China in the 1930s to secure not only Japanese uh, interests, but also to protect Chinese children from the adults around them in China who are abusing them.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. uh, Personally, it reminded me a little bit of the, uh, you know, rumors of Jews drinking Christian blood and that sort of thing in, in Christian Europe. And the, the response to it seemed to to fall in a sort of in the same spectrum of uh, uh, phenomena. Yeah, um,
1: absolutely. If I could follow up on that. Um, so, yeah, yeah um, there's a, a book by, I think it was uh, Aldit Fauch and um, I forget who, called The Missing Children of Paris from about... Mm-hmm. Uh, rumors about Louis the Fifteenth, I believe, um, taking bats in the blood of children. So there's that going on. There are, of course, the blood libel uh, rumors, but there's a there's a folklore of um, organ snatching involving children that that is, you know, I, I don't know if it's universal, but it's very widespread. And people like the anthropologist Nancy Shepard Hughes have looked at how in uh, Latin America and Brazil and elsewhere, these kinds of rumors cropped up again in the 1980s and 90s, and then we've seen them in um, in post-socialist Eastern Europe and Russia as well. So um, one way of thinking about this is that these are kind of um, fears of colonial or neo-colonial intervention that get articulated through these rumors about body snatching. Uh, and I think the, the, the work that's been done on vampire stories in Central and Southern Africa uh, by Louise White and others is part of this as well so how people make sense of colonial situations or what they perceive as colonial situations or exploitative situations uh, gets worked, worked out through these kinds of idioms uh, but here what's interesting is that again it's it's the Chinese presence that is um, at the core of it
0: Yeah. um, And I think this particularly, you know, again, for me personally, this idea of body snatching and the sort of the the ways and, you know, when we talk about this a lot um, in thinking about uh, the history of modern nation states, the the, some, the slippage between the individual and collective body, between the sort mm-hmm. of geo-body of the nation and the individual body. And so any you know, violation or theft of individual bodies almost automatically has that resonance with uh, a kind of transgression against the state. Um, and in particular, you know, you're talking about this very sensitive period for Japan of trying to establish that geo-body, that sort of national body mm-hmm. um, in international politics. So it makes a lot of sense that you'd have uh, those kind of anxieties cropping up. Mm. Um, And I I see the same sort of dynamics playing out in your second chapter, uh, which is called In the Antlion's Pit, Abduction Narratives and Marriage Migration Between Japan and Fuqing. And First of all, if you'd like to uh, fill in some of our listeners, I'm sure, on, on, on what an ant lion is, that might be helpful. But um, near the beginning of the chapter, uh, you write that uh, Japanese women allegedly being abducted by Fujinese men, often cloth peddlers, uh, whom they had met in Japan um, is, is an issue that is the issue that you're dealing with. And I like this adverb allegedly here. And I want to focus on that a little bit. Um, I read that in my mind with sort of boldface italics, uh, and of course you have it scare quoted. Mm. Um, so what's going on here and why does it result in what you refer to as a cross border tug of war in which Japanese women are the rope and the prize. Um, and how does that fit, fit into the big picture argument about transgressive intimacies and mobilities?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so the ant lion's pit um, it refers to a kind of a, a snare where one digs. The further one digs, the the more one gets sucked into the the trap. And it's used um, today. It's often used to to refer to um, to debt bondage, uh, particularly in the in the water trade in Japan. That women get um, uh, lured in uh, and then through debt they get they get stuck there. So uh, at this time, the ant lion or the ant lion's pit was a place called Fuching in, um, in coastal Fujian province in South, uh, South China, right across the, the Strait from Taiwan. And, uh, a lot of the peddlers who came to Japan in the late 19th and early 20th century came from Fuching. Um, there were, I want to say more than half of the, the, the known peddler population in Japan was from Fuching, uh, at that time, uh, several thousand. And, um, you know, Chinese emigrants, like other merchant, uh, emigrant merchant populations, uh, would set up separate families wherever they, they landed. Uh, it was a way to stabilize their lives. It was also a way to get to know local society, cultivate business relationships and, and, um, and clienteles and so forth. Um, and so many of these peddlers who came to uh, Japan from Fuqing wound up cohabiting with Japanese women. Uh, some would legally marry them, but many were just involved in common law relationships and they might have children or women who entered into these relationships might have children from previous marriages or previous relationships. Um, and um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, looking at the, the 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 experiences of women who wound up in these relationships can tell us a lot about how women in general might have um, struggled under adverse circumstances to make the best of their lives if they you know, were poor or uh, had bad family relationships or were unwed mothers and so forth. Um, so here uh, we get these uh, relationships formed between um, Fujinese peddlers and Japanese women. And a good number of the peddlers then uh, decide for whatever reason that they're going to go back to Fuching and they bring their wives with them. And um, the reasons uh, varied. But once women started going to Fuching, all of a sudden you got these rumors and reports coming back that the women had been abducted, that they had been promised lives of absolute wealth and, and, uh, and luxury, uh, but that once they got there, they realized that their husbands were already married, that they were going to be the concubine or the sex slave or the domestic servant. Um, and that uh, this was a very poor region, they were going to live horrible lives, and so they needed to be rescued. This was the, the kind of story that was produced about their experiences, and it was conveyed to the Japanese through uh, people from, you know, Japanese in China who were transmitting uh, stories like this, and then it gets picked up in the Japanese press, the Japanese government, the foreign ministry. Uh, gets involved in trying to um, investigate this. Uh, The cabinet ministers get involved, and ultimately the consulate in Fuzhou is told to send out police officers to investigate. Uh, So you get this kind of... um, Media story and government story about abductions, and you get rescue missions that are then launched to try and rescue these women. But when these Japanese state officials actually come into these various villages in Fuching, if they're allowed into the villages, sometimes they're not even allowed in. But when they do uh, gain access, they often find that the women are dumbfounded that they've come for them uh, and don't understand why. That many of the women um, express sentiments such as, "Well, you know." Yes, it's, we're poor here, but I'm with my husband, and this is the life I've chosen, and uh, I'm committed to it. Um, I found in the Japanese Foreign Ministry archives, I found a dossier full of cases like this, with individual um, life histories and reports, and so teasing out what's what's real is a real challenge here. And and whether there is a real or not is, is another question. I mean, women's own positions about their situations may have changed over time. At one time, a woman might feel that she was in a good place. And another time she might feel that this was an abusive relationship and she wanted out. Um, There was, it's really hard to to tease out what's going on in every case, but um, what the Japanese government officials found is that most women did not want to return to Japan. Now they wrote this off to women's shame, um, that they had been humiliated by their experiences and didn't want to face their relatives or face the Japanese public. But I think it's much more complicated than that. And so this, um, this narrative template of abduction that the Japanese foreign ministry produces and the Japanese press produces um, has to be read as alleged abduction because um, it's a much more complicated story than that. And so we can look on the one hand at how the story itself, the abduction narrative, helps to generate a kind of imperialist mentality uh, of an injured Japanese patriarchal masculinity that has to go and rescue women in order to avenge itself on a predatory China. But we can also drill down to look at how ordinary lives were lived in the spaces between Japan and China and how um, for women on the ground in their everyday lives, questions of empire or nation may have been less salient than questions of personal affinity or um, or personal struggle.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and I, I think it's uh, you, you pointed out in your answer that there, one of the things that you're sort of dealing with as a central theme, and then this is, you know, in some ways reflective, of course, of your sources, is the uh, combination of government and media narratives. Um, and I think to, for, to my mind, uh, chapter three, the media narrative is very, very strong. Um, Chapter three, uh, embodying the borderland in the Taiwan Strait, uh, Nakamura Sueko as runaway woman and pirate queen. Um, And I think I said this to you in an email as we were uh, corresponding before the podcast, but I I can't help but think this must have been the most enjoyable chapter to write. Um, After all, your protagonist is a pirate queen, um, and she is a badass um so could you tell us about her life um and how it was made to mean especially in the popular media
1: yeah um this was a chapter it was i think at one level you're right it was a fun chapter to write another level was a very challenging chapter to write because again it gets at these questions of what can we know and state with confidence and what must we sort of leave as unknowable um as as subject to to various um fabrications, which are not necessarily malicious fabrications, but, um, but, um, uh, you know, where's the story, you know, what do we do with stories that have, um, different perspectives, uh, and where the sources are rather thin. And, um, Nakamura Suiko was a woman who was born in, uh, in Hokkaido. She was born in, um, in Northwestern Hokkaido and, uh, was raised on the island of Rishiri which is a volcanic island um i think it's famous for its its seaweed and for bicycle tours these days but um it's a fishing uh it was a fishing area and her parents had uh, had migrated from probably from tohoku to hokkaido sometime in the meiji era um and uh she was raised there she was um uh, trained to be uh, a school teacher, but never taught. And then uh, while she was studying sewing at a, probably a sewing machine classroom, she met a Chinese peddler from Fuching, and eloped with him to uh, to Fuching. And then she eloped a second time uh, or separated from him and then wound up uh, being the wife of a Chinese pirate who was um, leading a group of pirates raiding ships in the Taiwan Strait and then further south in the South China Sea. And I think, I discovered Nakamura Sueko through the Taiwanese uh, press, the Taiwan Nichinichi Shinpo, which is a Japanese language newspaper uh, in in colonial Taiwan, was carrying a number of stories about her. I thought this is interesting, and I tried to uh, figure out what was going on there. And then I found her again in the Foreign Ministry Archives on the so-called abducted women. So I was able to piece together the the basic narrative of her life. And what comes out from this is that... um, and there's another part to this I'll have to add in, in a second. But what comes out is that the pirates that she was involved with were, um, were not just ordinary bandits, but they were Protestant, university-educated revolutionaries who um, were either sort of on the left wing of the Chinese Kuomintang or uh, were part of the third force that was trying to position itself between the Kuomintang and the Communist Party in China, or they were communist sympathizers. And they were trying to work in alignment with the communists to um, engineer social revolution in Fujian province and to break Fujian away from Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang regime. So she winds up in the middle of this and uh, she becomes the boss's wife, who's helping to organize attacks and, and divvy up the, the the loot that they're taking. And ostensibly, they're taking this money in order to um, purchase arms for the coming revolution. Um, but what I find is that her story... Um, Really helps us to see how space is moving. So, on the one level, it's a story about her as an individual and her intimate relationships and her transgressive mobilities. But at the same time, it's a story about how East Asia as a region is being transformed. On the one hand, you can see how she is a product of this mobility of Japanese to Japan's new northern frontier of Hokkaido, and then her father becomes a migrant fisher who goes up to Karafto or Sagalin Island to fish there seasonally as well. So this is part of that larger trajectory of northern migration and and Japanese um, transmarine capitalist development. She's tied into Chinese uh, merchant networks through her migrant husband. Um, She becomes involved in the black market, smuggling sugar uh, and other goods from uh, Taiwan, from Japanese Taiwan into China. Uh, And then she becomes involved in piracy in these larger politics. And this is all happening while the Chinese Republic itself is trying to consolidate its own territorial sovereignty and authority over its own periphery. Uh, And Fujian has always been a problematic periphery for uh, Chinese central authorities. And so that process is taking shape. And as it's taking shape, and as these pirates are um, getting involved in uh, revolutionary politics, the Japanese military based in Taiwan is very interested in getting their finger into the pot in order to try and influence the dynamics of this uh, process and to to gain a foothold um, in Fujian province through these pirate groups because Fujian has always been um, an object of desire for Japanese imperialists from the late 19th century forward. So uh, in many ways, her story is, is, you know, it's a picaresque story about an individual who winds up in a very, um, you know, odd, unusual situation, but at the same time, it tells us a lot about the the spatial politics uh, of the region at that time. Um, and I should add that, in terms of how I was able to tell this story, one of the things that made it so rewarding, in some ways, was that I was able, through social media, to uh, come into contact with the nephew of Nakamura Soiko's pirate husband, Chen Changling, and um, and I was ultimately able to meet him when the Association for Asian Studies had their annual meeting in Toronto a few years ago, he lives in Toronto. And so he came to pick me up and we we went to his house and um, and talked. And he, he's been sharing, while I was writing this, uh, this uh, chapter, he was sharing family history and various documents that he had collected with me. And that offered a very different uh, outlook on the story from what I was able to get simply from the sources I'd acquired on my own. And so I think that Um, this was a lesson for me in terms of how one might approach global history. Now we really have to look at the archive in a very different way, Um, being willing to use social media, being willing to work with family histories that may not always be um, verifiable by orthodox criteria, but that nonetheless are very informative and illuminating.
0: Yeah. I also found that uh, very compelling that your, your anecdote with her, uh, with, sorry, with his nephew. um, And this idea about the sort of new, approaches to archive, uh, I think is, you know, particularly fits nicely with what you're trying to do in the book in talking about the power of narrative, uh, and stories in, in sort of shaping our understandings, which is, you know, something that we talked about, um, uh, in relation to the introduction of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, So in chapter four, uh, which is called Borders in Blood, Water, and Ink, Ando Sakan's Intimate Mappings of the South China Sea, uh, you explore the uh, writings of Ando Sakan, who, um, as you say yourself, is uh, a a now forgotten author, right? You, you, you You admit right up front, hardly anyone remembers Ando Sakan. So... Well, who was he? Um, what did he write about? And most importantly, of course, why should we care about somebody that you yourself describe as, quote, and it's a wonderful quote, so I'm just going to, uh, uh, a decidedly middle-brow writer with an often hackneyed style. Um I felt personally attacked, but uh, <laughs> how does how does reading uh, Ando Sakan help us better understand the political and social life of the Japanese Empire in the interwar era, and in particular, how do his stories emphasize the fragility of Japan's status um, as a sort of fledgling first class nation empire, uh, which is, of course, one of your central themes?
1: Yeah, so um, so yeah, Ando Sakan is somebody that very few people have heard of. There's been a little bit of a, a an upsurge in interest in, in Ando in recent years, but not much. Um, this is a guy who, um, he's born in Kyushu in the 1890s. And in the early 20th century, 20th century, he drops out of fishery school and goes up to Karafto in the north and becomes a fisher in the colony there for a couple of years. And then he goes down to Taiwan and becomes a fisher and then works through a number of jobs until he becomes a reporter for one of the Japanese newspapers in Taichung. And um, as a reporter for this newspaper, he's covering the rise of of Taiwanese um, cultural nationalist movements. He becomes a police informant for a while, uh, and I was really happy to be able to find the documents that discussed that. Uh, And he's sent uh, as an investigative reporter to to do research on South China and French Indochina in the early 1920s. And this marks him for life. And he comes back and he writes his first book about the conditions in South China and Indochina. And then um, he tries to make a career for himself as a kind of a colonial expert. He writes pamphlets, he writes uh, articles in, in various armchair imperialist magazines, uh, but it doesn't quite pan out. And then he starts writing travel literature uh, based on his experiences in South China and Indochina, and this gets him an audience. He, be, he becomes, um, he's taken under the wing of some of the leading Taishu um, Bunge, or you know, um, uh, mass, mass literature, popular literature authors in the 1920s um, and his career seems to be taking off and then he gets involved in a in a, a scandal where he had given a manuscript to a famous novelist in order to get it published and the novelist took the manuscript and published it under his own name and so when ando brings this up the whole literary world turns on him um, and he loses much of his uh, publishing opportunities but then he he re-emerges uh in the yomiuri newspaper in the early 1930s um, Shoriki Matsutaro, the the publisher of the Yomiri, took a liking to him, sent him back to South China to report on um, conditions after the 1931 Manchurian incident and also on Chinese piracy. And Ando, who claimed to have an in with Chinese pirates that he developed when he was in Taiwan, writes this 75 installment reportage about his life among the pirates of of South China. Uh, It's a big hit it gets turned into a book. He then gets to recycle some of his other stories that he's written over the years into books. And so he has a spurt of popularity in the 1930s and he's writing for pretty much anybody that will publish him. He writes, he publishes with Chuo Okorong, which is like the elite kind of magazine, but he also publishes really trashy pulp stuff um, in, in magazines where every Chinese character has a a phonetic uh, pronunciation attached to it. So for the barely literate as well. Um, And The subjects are not only Chinese pirates, but they're um, Japanese who are abroad, these kind of Japanese who have a pioneering spirit, who are striking out um, for the expansion of the Japanese nation or the Japanese ethno-nation, but at the same time, we're encountering all these hardships that are calling into question their ability to survive as true Japanese. So on the one hand, he writes about um, Japanese sex workers, migrant sex workers in Southeast Asia, in French Indochina in particular, the so-called Karayuki-san. Um, and he looks at these women as again pure Japanese in their hearts, but whose blood has been polluted, literally polluted by contact with non-Japanese, with uh, Chinese, with Europeans, with uh, with Southeast Asian peoples, and so therefore their Japanese identity and their Japanese their physical Japanese identity is disintegrating the longer they stay in these locations, but they can never come back because they see themselves as polluted, as he puts it. And so he talks about the tragedy of these Japanese women who are so brave and hardy uh, and fighting with their last breath for Japan, but nonetheless facing this tragic fate. Or he talks about um, Japanese medicine peddlers, men who have um, settled in China, uh, taken Chinese wives, and little by little they too, despite the fact that they're striking a blow for Japan, by expanding its economic opportunities, they're also sinking into this amorphous uh, primordial Chinese space that, that will swallow them up and they will be lost. They'll, they'll lose their japanese in the process. They'll lose their Japanese masculinity in the process. Um, and, uh, and so what we see in his stories is this real gendered anxiety about Japanese imperialism's viability in a world in which not just the Europeans but the Chinese are such a powerful presence particularly chinese migrants who are moving around southeast asia and establishing settlements and uh, dominating local economies and for him um japan had had a history prior to the tokugawa of striking out in southeast asia of building a, a maritime empire and that gets shut off that's a common discourse that we see at the time and he hopes that japan will again Resume that position of being a southward advancing imperial power, but nonetheless he's very fearful that not only will the Japanese state not support those kinds of ventures, but also that Japan really can't compete with China in the region. So that's the kind of the fragile imperialist mentality that I'm uh, tracing there, and the gendered idioms in which it's articulated. And, um, you know, there's been work done on sort of, um, the libidinal economy of the Japanese empire that talks about adventure stories in Manchuria, for example, or adventure stories in the South seas islands that are all about victorious Japanese. And here we see in the South China sea zone, um, a Japanese imperial consciousness that's much more fragile than what you see in the literature of those other zones. So I'm bringing out a different aspect of Japanese imperial popular culture. And um, again, Ando was forgotten, but at the same time, he was read widely in his time. And I think it's important to to bring that out because it it gives us a sense more of what was going on in the back pages of newspapers and magazines that might have um, just come into the consciousness of ordinary Japanese.
0: Yeah, and I think I I liked uh, the way that you sort of, you know, wrap up the main chapters with this chapter on Ando, who's doing the narrativization of the same kinds of, uh, uh, you know, gendered, in particular, um, sort of national body anxieties that you uh, deal with in chapters one and two, uh, you know, most directly. Um, But one of the other things that I really appreciated about the way you've structured the book is what you do in the epilogue, uh, which is called Rupture. Returns and reopenings, um, and in the epilogue, you trace some long-term continuities and discontinuities in these narratives and themes, which, you know, as we've talked about, are really uh, limited in in their you know temporal scope uh, within the four chapters, um, and so. One of the things I'd like you to talk about in terms of the epilogue is uh, this gentleman named Nakano Junzo who you talk about uh, in the book, um, and the case of an extended family of Chinese who uh, just in 2010 obtained residence permits in Japan, uh, claiming to be descended from a Japanese woman who had gone to Fuching in 1926 with her Chinese husband. Um, and through that sort of anecdote, if you could tell us about the sort of afterlife of these imperial undergrounds uh, that you've dealt with in the chapters.
1: Yeah. um, So um, after, I guess the bulk of my narrative goes through the 1930s. And then once the the war breaks out between uh, Japan and China in 1937, or the, the, the all out phase of the war between Japan and China breaks out in 1937, these stories, um, are very hard to follow for the most part. Um, and then after the war, those Japanese who were in, say, Fuching and wanted to come back um, and had documentation, you know, a household registry document, for example, showing that they were Japanese, they were able to come back. But you get a, a large number who were not able to come back, who wound up stuck in uh, in Fuching and, um, and had to make their lives there for the following decades and um among them were the family of um they weren't in fuching they were actually in, um, in guangzhou um but the family of a man named nakano junzo who um uh, ando sakan had written about ando sakan had encountered nakano junzo at some point in um in his travels in the early 1920s in uh beihai on the gulf of tonkin and Nakano was living, as Ando depicted him, as the only Japanese in this Chinese treaty port, a small treaty port, and he had a Chinese family, and he was very conscious of his Japanese ethnicity, but also being drawn inexorably into this Chinese world and, and losing his, his Japanese-ness to this larger Chinese world. Um, now that's the story that Ando presented. How Nakano Jinzo actually lived his life is, is less clear. But what we do know about him is that he was murdered in 1936. Um, In what's called the 9-3 incident, Um, he was murdered by a group of Chinese nationalist militants who saw him as a spy for Japan. And he left behind a family of uh, a Chinese wife, a Chinese concubine, who quickly disappears into local society, and uh, five children. There were more children, uh, some to the concubine. Also, we don't know what happened there, but there were five children with his Chinese wife. Um, And the, the sons are brought back to Japan. Quite quickly, but the daughters remain in China, and um, we don't hear much about them after that. But then, in 1968, the youngest daughter uh, divorces her own Chinese husband. Um, They're they're living on um, economically hard times. She divorces her Chinese husband. She leaves her children behind, and she smuggles herself into Hong Kong. And once she's arrested as an illegal immigrant in Hong Kong, she declares that she's of Japanese parentage and so the japanese consulate is notified they come they identify her they bring her back to japan and she settles in tokyo and actually opens a chinese restaurant not far from sofia university or jochi university in in central tokyo Uh, and i was able to go to the restaurant and meet one of her sons who had then migrated subsequently i wasn't able to meet her she doesn't come to the center of the city very much um but uh so this is an example of these stories coming back. Now, what I argue in the epilogue is that in the 1960s, when she came, um, she could be depicted as somebody who was fleeing a China in turmoil. This was a familiar narrative for the Japanese, that China was in turmoil because now it was the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and Japan had successfully navigated the post-war period to become an economic powerhouse, a first world country. Uh, and so her... Leaving China to come to Japan to re- or to return in quotes to Japan uh, was an affirmation of Japan's uh, superiority in this in this relationship. But then what we see happening later on after the normalization of relations um, under Deng Xiaoping and his successors is that more and more um, people of Japanese parentage or who claim Japanese parentage from Fuching. Begin to want to try to come to Japan or return to Japan, as they put it. And whereas in the pre-war period, these um, Japanese in Fuji were seen as a symbol of Chinese predation and how Japan had to um, defend itself against Chinese predation. Now these people coming are seen as China's predators themselves. That they're 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 not trusted to be real Japanese. Um, they're seen as, as trying to get out of a China that is still backwards and come to a Japan that is naive, gullible, and willing to share its bounty with anyone who claims to be Japanese, you know, of Japanese parentage. And so this, uh, the story of the women in, in Osaka is, uh, two women whose mother actually had gone to Fuching in the 1920s with her Chinese husband and had 10 children there. And they stay, um. The husband is killed during the Cultural Revolution, um, beaten to death as a Chinese, as a Japanese spy. But then the mother manages to return uh, in the 1990s, and she dies there. And then two sisters in their 70s uh, are allowed to come back to Japan. But then they bring 48 of their relatives over with them. And uh, most of the relatives apply for public assistance. And this becomes a big scandal. The Japanese right gets involved. The Japanese media picks it up. And all of a sudden, instead of being a story of Japanese who had been Kept in, in China against their will and are now allowed to come back with their families. Uh, it's a story of the Chinese taking advantage of Japan and trying to, in the words of one right-wing author, trying to turn Japan into a Chinese autonomous zone. So these stories continue and the rhetoric's, you know, the 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 the, the rhetoric modulates a little bit, but the, the long-term narrative of Sinophobia remains.
0: Yeah, that's really, uh, it's really interesting how uh, you were able to trace some of these um, you know events and people directly down to the present, you know, not just the uh, nephew of uh, Nakamura's uh, husband, but also uh, some of these other families into the present. Um, so I, I screwed it up uh, on the front end, but I'm not going to mess it up on the back end. I know mm-hmm. we we're going to end with the traditional question, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, or what what can we expect from you in the future?
1: Great. Um, So I have two things going. One is um, a project that my colleague Kate McDonald at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I have been putting together um, quite intensively for the last few years, which is a digital spatial history project called Bodies and Structures, Deep Mapping Modern East Asian History. Um, It started with... um, a chance encounter at the uh, AAS uh, at an AAS meeting a few years ago, where we both realized that we had interest in spatial history and spatial theory, and it blossomed from that into uh, a series of workshops and conferences, and then into a, a website where we've collaborated with a number of uh, scholars on Japan, China, and now Southeast Asia as well um, to uh, produce a multivocal spatial history of of modern East Asia, one which is spatial um, without being um, bound to cartographic representation. So we're not trying to simply have uh, a map with lots of GIS layers on it. What we're actually trying to do is, as I do with with storytelling, we're actually trying to... um, to encourage users and uh, and authors in the site to to think about space as the simultaneity of stories so far. This is a quote from Doreen Massey that we were enamored of. Um, And to think about how people encounter space and navigate it uh, in ways that are conceptual uh, and not necessarily geolocatable. So so that's the project that we're doing. Um, We published version 1.0 of that uh, in early 2019. We now have an NEH Digital Humanities grant to build version 2.0, uh, and we're in the process of doing that. So that should be released in 2021, uh, although we're experiencing some delays because of COVID 19 right now. We hope we can keep this on track. And um, and individually, I'm working on um, what I think will be a book length project on uh, maritime history. Uh, maritime World Making in Modern Japan is the tentative title. I'm looking at different Um, different aspects of Japan's modern maritime history, shipping, not so much as kind of business history, but as a series of social processes that, that can help us to understand how people made sense of space, how scale was constructed, um, from the individual actions of seamen crossing the Pacific or, um, or in the South China Sea to um, the life history of routes that were constructed at particular moments and fell apart at other moments, to the experiences of dock workers uh, as they encountered um, seafarers and information from other parts of, of Asia and beyond. So um, it's still in an early stage, but the, the current chapter I'm working on has to do with um, the Bandung moment. Japanese dock workers and, um, and Afro-Asian solidarity. So, um, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get into an archive to actually complete the work on that chapter because everything's shut down right now, but, uh, but that's what I'm doing.
0: Great. That's really exciting. I, I just wanted to say, I mean, I've actually used your uh, version 1.0 of the spatial history project with Kate McDonald uh, as a, an, an example in my class of both how to do history and also how to use scalar. Um, and so I'm very excited to hear there's a 2.0 coming out and also looking forward to your book. And I hope that uh, uh, when it comes out, you'll consider coming back on the podcast.
1: would be glad to. And Kate and I would love to come back and talk about uh, bodies and structures as well.
0: That would be great. All right. Well, I'll look forward to uh, uh, putting that together. And thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you.